Well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, and we'll continue in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Title for today is Fleeing Our Former Lives, which sounds like an interesting uh, thing to do. How do you flee your former life? Well, that's exactly what Paul aims at in this text. Uh, it's interesting. I, uh, I number the sermons um, 01, 02, 03 as I'm going through in, in a book study, and it was, uh, it was surprising to me as I numbered the sermon early this week that this is number 50. We've been 50 sermons in Ephesians, and we're not even halfway through chapter 4. And I think that what that speaks to is your appetite for, for God's Word. I just feel like we can't go slow enough and we can't go deep enough to keep uh, you so uh, satisfied and hungry for the truth of God's Word. It's such a rich encouragement to me. We're looking today at three verses, verses 17 to 19, and this is one of the darker sections of the book. And we'll explain that as we go along, but this is a glimpse, a snapshot of the life that we left when we came, became Christians that we're to flee from even now. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, and the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. A year ago this month, I was looking through my news feed, and a title grabbed my attention. I knew that we would be coming to this passage eventually, and I copied that, that title and that article and put it in my notes for when we would look to this passage. The title was this, CCM Icon, Contemporary Christian Music Icon, Amy Grant, quote, it's so important to set a welcome table, gay, straight, it does not matter, end quote. In an interview with Hunter Kelly, who himself is homosexual, on Apple Music's Proud Radio, Grant engaged in a conversation that went on and on about the LGBTQ community's place in country music. During the interview, she made the following comments, and I'll read them exactly as she said them. Quote, Who loves us more than the one who made us? None of us are a surprise to God. Nothing about who we are or what we've done. That's why, to me, it's so important to set a welcome table. Because I was invited to a table when, where someone said, Don't be afraid, you're loved. Gay, straight, it does not matter. It doesn't matter how we behave. It doesn't matter how we're wired. We're all our best selves 
when we believe to our core, I am loved, then our creativity flourishes. We're like, I'm going to arrange flowers on your table and my table. When we're loved, we're brave enough to say yes to every good impulse that comes to us, end quote. Now, there are a lot of things I could say about that quote and that comment, those comments, and I could pick apart quite a bit, honestly. But what I found most troubling is something that we need to think about and talk about because it's something that our text addresses. She said, quote, this assertion, quote, it doesn't matter how we, and by we, she meant Christians in the context, it doesn't matter how we behave. It doesn't matter how we're wired, end quote. Doesn't matter how we behave. Does the Bible affirm that assertion that it doesn't really matter how we behave? That's the age-old argument called antinomianism. That's a big word that you ought to have some familiarity with. Anti-no, nomos, law. No law, no command. You don't have to obey anything. In modern parlance, it's the, the free grace movement, where we live in grace, and because of God's grace, we can live like we want, and God will love us just the same. Grant Kapersh captures antinomianism succinctly in the phrase, it doesn't matter how we behave. Well, in the text we come to today in our study of Ephesians, Paul teaches the exact opposite of that. He teaches the exact opposite of antinomianism. Instead of saying, it doesn't matter how we behave, Paul says, don't live like you used to. Don't walk as a Gentile walked. In other words, it does matter how we behave, especially if we claim to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. It matters a lot, and it's a big deal how we behave. Let me say it another way. When you read the New Testament, based on the Old Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, there's an overwhelming message. Change is fundamental to biblical Christianity. Change is a part of being a child of God. Children of God change because they become God's children. The same Paul who wrote these words in Ephesians said this to believers living in Corinth. You know it well. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Then he says this. Old things have passed away. And behold, new things have come. Any casual reading of Jesus' call in the Gospels and the explanations of the Christian faith in the New Testament letters over and over and over state that following Christ involves a change. Lots of changes, fundamental changes in who you are in both thinking and in lifestyle. And those go hand in glove. Thinking leads to lifestyle. Lifestyle is built on how we think. How do you think? How do you live? Well, that's the context of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul understood this well. 
Think about this. If you've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who was executed and rose from the dead, whose life was perfect and sinless, different than any other person who ever lived, if you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who said, I created the world, who asked the Father in John 17, restore to me after I die and am resurrected, restore to me the glory that we shared before the earth began, before the universe was. If you have a relationship with him, it is not possible for that relationship to have no effect. Knowing Jesus has a radical impact on a believer's life. It's consequential. It's important to remember that Paul began this section in Ephesians 4.1 with the call to walk, to live. We, we spent a lot of time talking about walking. Walking is a metaphor for living. And it was a mo- major metaphor for them because they, that was the way they ambulated. There was no other way to get around. There weren't bicycles and motorcycles and cars and trains. They, they walked. Very few had enough money for a horse or a camel. You walked where you went. Walking became a metaphor for life. And so you can substitute the word walk for live. He said, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Live in a manner that's axios, that's, that's, that matches, that, that has symbionts with, with the Lord. In other words, it's how you live should reflect what you believe, and what you believe should impact how you live. That's the point. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now he comes to the practical application of walking worthy in the rest of the chapter and all actually through chapter 6, 5 and 6. What's interesting to me about Ephesians after having gone through almost half of this book is that it's so different than his other epistles from this standpoint. It has a lot of unique features. But almost every other epistle, Paul is not only writing to instruct in theology, but he's writing to, to give a correction. There's a certain crisis or crises in the church. I mean, think of First and Second Corinthians I mean, basically it's 10 or 12 verses of encouragement, then 16 chapters of a spiritual spanking. Uh, It's pretty serious. He's correcting. He doesn't do that in, in Ephesians. But he is concerned about something in their lives. And that's this. The very real possibility that they could experience spiritual relapse. By spiritual relapse, that means they would drift back into who they were before they were believers. Did you notice uh, providentially what we read this morning in Ephesians, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 2 in our scripture reading? For this reason, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift from it. Paul understood that drifting is possible. Paul understood that drifting is relapsing into the thinking and behaving of our lives before we were saved, before we were Christians. So he addresses that here in the three verses before us. He details a summary description of, of a believer's former life in verses 17 and 19 and contrasts it with a believer's new life, beginning in verse 20. But you... He talks about unbelievers and their life, but you, in verse 20. But there is linkage. There is a you, there's a me, there's a, a believer who's addressed in 
Verse 17. Don't walk. Don't walk like Gentiles walk. Don't relapse into a pre-Christian way of thinking the way you lived before you were saved. Don't relapse. That all, all involves change. When you come to faith in Christ, you change. God changes you, and then you lean into that change and sanctification the rest of your days. So let's break this down real simply. Paul gives two requirements for change in a Christian's life. Two requirements for change in a Christian's life. Now, what he's going to do is start with the inside, our mind, our thinking, and then move to the outside, our living, and our actions. Inside to outside, internal to external. Two requirements for change in a Christian's life. We'll look at the internal first, which Paul outlines, and then he goes to the external. The first requirement for change in a Christian's life is in verses 17 and 18. Change from an ungodly way of thinking. Change, you can look at that as a description or an imperative. Change from an ungodly way of thinking. Let's set it up. Verse 17. So this I say, Paul's saying, I want to tell you something, all right? I want to give you some apostolic authority. But then he goes on and says, and affirm together with the Lord. So he's going to say something that's not new revelation. He says, what I'm saying actually goes back to the Lord. You read the context from chapters 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is Jesus. What are you going to say that you agree with Jesus about, Paul? That you walk, he's talked about walking for a whole chapter here, no longer... So this is the negative side. You walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Now, when you see that, you ought to say, wait a minute. Paul is affirming together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Where did Jesus say, don't walk as the Gentiles walk? What's Paul agreeing with? What's he affirming together with the Lord about? Let's back up a second. The commands to forsake sin the commands to pursue righteous living, that's not the mantra of legalistic, Bible-thumping, narrow-minded preachers or Bible churches. It goes back to Christ himself. It goes back to the Old Testament in God speaking as well. Where did the Lord Jesus, though, command his followers to live differently than the Gentiles, than they used to? There is no quote in the Gospels that says exactly what Paul says here. So what is he doing? It's very simple. He's saying, I'm affirming the same principle that Jesus affirmed. I'm teaching the same thing that he affirmed. Like what? Well, remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 20? For I say to you, Jesus speaking, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You ever wonder what that meant? Is he saying the Pharisees and, and, the, and the, uh, the scribes, they have this way of living, and you got to be even more persnickety than they. No, 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 no. If you keep reading the Sermon on the Mount, the difference that Jesus is calling for is not to be righteous in all the nuances of their behavior. He's saying they need to be righteous in heart as well as in deed, which is exactly what Paul's going to address here. To his disciples in Matthew 16 in Caesarea Philippi, after Peter's great affirmation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, anyone, comprehensive, if anyone 
wishes to follow me, come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, be willing to die, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake, Jesus said, will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, Jesus is saying, you deny yourself when you come to follow me. You you stop being who you were and you become someone new. Christianity involves substantial, fundamental, from the heart out to the action change. Now, as we've been studying and said even already this morning, the word for walk is a euphemism for living. So when he says, walk no longer as the Gentiles, he's saying, live no longer as the Gentiles. You know what's astonishing to me? He's talking to Gentiles. Now, now think about how crazy that is for a second. You're a Gentile, and he says, don't walk anymore as the Gentiles, as if they're a different group. You say, where did he get that? Because in chapter 2, he said over and over. In chapter 3, he emphasized, you're no longer Jew. You're no longer Gentile. You're Christian. You say, well, he's kind of picking on the Gentiles. Well, read chapter 2 of Romans because he picks on the Jews and says, don't be like the Jews of your time who are not taking advantage of the gifts that God's given them. Gentile became a shorthand for unbelieving life. Life before Christ, life before God. It's nothing novel. This is nothing new here. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5.1. He's talking about a terrible situation in the church that was about to solicit church discipline where a man was committing immorality. And listen to this. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's Wife. That's just an incredible comparison. He says, you're acting so bad, unbelievers don't even act that way. Who are the unbelievers? The Gentiles. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Very clear. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel, in sanctification and in honor than this, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Listen, that, that's incredible. The Gentiles have lustful passion, and it's because they, they have no relationship with the living God, with Yahweh of the Old Testament, with the Lord Jesus in the New. Paul's point is that believers' new identities Their new way of living exists in stark contrast to the foolish thinking and sinful behavior that they used to live in before they were Christians. I'm overstating the obvious 10 times, and let me say it again. If you're a Christian, you change because you're a Christian from the way you were before you were a believer. Very simple. Now, let let me give you some warning. As we study... Chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, we're going to have to sneak ahead because he finishes some thoughts ahead. And then when we get there, we're going to have to go back to see where he kind of began them. 
Look for a moment at chapter 4, verse 20. In contrast to the unbeliever, he says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him, been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to the, your former manner of life as a Gentile, as an unbeliever, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Remember that phrase. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There's the difference. Unbelievers don't live in righteousness and holiness based in the truth. In other words, change. Christian, be different than you used to be. And as a Christian, he's also saying in these three verses, don't relapse. Don't walk like you used to. Don't walk like unbelievers do. Be distinct. Be different. Then he gets specific about this change internally, and as we'll see in our second point, externally. So let's just rapid fire go through these like Paul does, okay? What does it mean to change in our thinking? From purposeless thinking, first of all, from purposeless thinking, in the futility or uselessness of their mind. Now, let me give you a Greek word that you need to kind of understand in going through this passage. This is noeo, or the mind, or thinking. This is, this is one of the passages that theologians point to what they call the noetic effects of the fall of our sinfulness. It affects our thinking, our mind, how we reason. Isn't it interesting? In the futility of their mind... But look at verse 23. You be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Christianity is rational. It is fundamentally a thinking man, a thinking woman's religion. We don't turn our minds off. We turn our minds on to truth, which changes how we think, which causes us to live differently. The futility of their mind. What does futility mean? It's a, it's a common word in the Old Testament New Testament. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about futility, which is vanity, uselessness. Paul explains a little bit more detail about this in Romans 1.21. Even though they, the Gentiles, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They knew there was a God, but they didn't pursue who he was. But they became futile, same word, in their speculations. They're figuring out how the world got here, who's in control, is there a God? And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So futility of mind here means useless ways of thinking without divinely ordered purposes. Now, that doesn't mean that a, an unbeliever can have a sharp mind for engineering and build bridges and build buildings and do amazing things, put man on the moon, and that's wonderful. They have a mind that's sharp. Purposeless thinking here means purposeless, futile way in, in reference to the gospel, eternal things, God, heaven, hell doesn't mean that unbelievers can't think well. It means they don't think well about divine things. It's useless. Don't walk like that. Know what you believe. Secondly, he says, change from darkened reasoning. Reasoning. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. This is an interesting description because it has two nuances. Darkened means without light, right? It's dark because it doesn't have light. 
being darkened in their thinking, their understanding, their, their interpretation of life, their reasoning. In other words, an unbeliever's interpretation of this world, of his or her life, is dark because, as we'll see in a minute, they're excluded from God and his word. They, they don't have a divine perspective on suffering, of sin, of, of difficulty, of even joy. This means morally dark as well, though. Not just dark in terms of revelation, but also dark in terms of morality. It implies ignorance, and it implies immorality. That's what darkened in your understanding means. And remember, Paul is saying, don't be that way anymore. That's the way you were. It's like searching for the light switch in the dark, and there is no light switch on the wall. You'll never find it. Darkened in their reasoning, their understanding. Morally and as a point of illumination and revelation. Third description. Change from, in your thinking, from theological ignorance. I would expect Paul to say this, actually. Theological ignorance. Middle of verse 18. They are excluded, left out, from the life of God because, and he gives two becauses, because of the ignorance that's in them. Now, we have to square this passage with, with Romans 1 that says there are no atheists, so they're not really ignorant. No, no. People, all people know that there is a God. The creation is enough to condemn people, but not enough to save people. You can deny that God exists in looking at the amazing wonders of his world, but you cannot come to understanding of Jesus Christ and the gospel through going out and looking at the beauty of trees. What is this talking about, though? They're ignorant. Well, in the context of they're ignorant from the life of God, and the life of God in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the gospel, is what Christ did for us in purchasing our salvation. Separate, excluded. This is not the first time we've heard that Gentiles were separate and excluded from the life of God. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 11? Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, and this is, we talked about this then. This is an interesting passage because these groups call each other names. You, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called, derisively, the uncircumcision by the, by the, the Jews, he says, you're called that by the so-called circumcision. They called them back. Hey, you're uncircumcised. Well, you're circumcised. And that was a point of name-calling, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Then he says this, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You Gentiles, you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, the blessings of Israel, having the law, having temple worship, having the revelation of, of Yahweh to them, and strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no law or prophets, no scriptures, having no hope and without God in the world. That's their state. And that's exactly what he's going back to in chapter four. I love the, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly, formerly used to be far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It would be so irresponsible for me not to stop at the, this moment and say, have you been brought near? 
Have you been brought near to God by the blood of Christ? We just sang it. That's the only way to be brought near is that our sin makes us eternally condemned. And the only way to have that sin taken care of is beyond our reach. We can't be good enough. We can't try hard enough. We can't access the holiness and righteousness we need to be before God, and we cannot rid ourselves of the sin that's been with us since our birth. So what do we do? Well, Jesus, Jesus on the cross took our sin, and God treated him as if he'd lived our sinful lives, and he executed him and poured his wrath out on him so that he could treat us in heaven as if we had lived Christ's righteous life. He imputed, Romans says, gave to us the righteousness of Christ. Now, if you're smart at all, you would look at that and say, that's not fair. That's not right. And that's why the gospel means good news. We had to have that because Ephesians 2.1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you, here's our word again, formerly used to, formerly walked. According to the world, according to Satan. This exclusion of Gentiles from the life of God is because of ignorance, not knowing the gospel, and resistance, not wanting to know the gospel, because it will mean you have to deal with your sin and leave your sin. You know, I was thinking about this this week and just watching the news, how, how troubled our world is, how crazy a world we live in, where you watch the news and what's, what's obviously sin is now called lawful and righteous. And we have to be tolerant of. And if you raise your hand and say, that's wrong, now you're, you're, you're the bad guy. And I naively, for a moment, thought, man, it's getting bad. And then I remembered how dumb that is to think. 800 years before Christ, Isaiah, quoting God, wrote in Isaiah 5, woe to those who call evil good and call good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's always been that way. If we live in God's moral sphere, we will be swimming upstream. Our good will be called evil, and what we see as evil will be elevated to be righteous and acceptable and Good. Excluded from the life of God because they call evil good and good evil. Paul says, don't relapse into that. You've been saved away from that kind of thinking. And then the last little description here sums it all up. Change because of the hardness of your heart. Now, we've... Talked about heart many times. Heart means mission control central. That's what one of my seminary professors, Dr. Zemek, talked about. Mission control central. It's 
thing that decides everything in your mind. That's your heart. The heart is hard. Kelly just preached a fantastic uh, exposition of Psalm 95 in our Sunday school talking about this exact issue. Hardness of heart is a phrase the Bible constantly uses to describe our resistance to the will of God, our resistance to the character of God, our resistance to the control of God. And what I find very interesting is that the promise of the new covenant, the promise of the coming gospel dealt with the hardness of heart in a very graphic way. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 I will give you a new heart when I bring the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Spoiler alert, stones are hard. He takes our hard hearts away and gives us a heart that senses and feels and responds to God. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk, there's our word, walk in my ways and my statutes and be careful to observe all my ordinances. Again, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you in an evil, who has an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's relapse. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That ought to remind you of the lusts of deceit in chapter 22. Verse 22. Hardness of heart is a simple disposition that is resistant to being corrected by biblical truth. A hard heart is resistant to being corrected by biblical truth. That's our thinking our thinking. Now, we're going to be renewed by the spirit of our mind in verse 23, beginning in our study next week. That's the internal. That's the thinking. What about the external? Well, number two is change from an immoral way of living. Two requirements for change in a Christian's life. Number one, change from an ungodly way of thinking. Number two, change from an immoral way of life, living. And he breaks this down into two descriptions as well. First of all, he says, change from sinful indifference. Very simple. It's just one word. And they, having become callous. It means hard, insensitive. It's, it's the same word as, that we use to, 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 to describe a callous that you get on your, your fingers. Like, I, I've, I like to play guitar. I grew up playing guitar. I have... Really nice guitar that my son stole from me, and that's for another time. Um, but sometimes I get that guitar out and I start to play, and I haven't played in a while. And I'll play a little bit, and it sounds really good for five minutes or so, and then it sounds muffled because I can't push the strings down anymore because it hurts my fingers because I have no calluses. Find some of the guitar players and say, let me see your fingers and just see what's going on on their left hand. It's calloused because you don't feel what's going on. That's the positive use of a callous. This is the negative use. Your heart is callous. It's resistant. It doesn't feel biblical truth. It doesn't care. It's insensitive. Insensitive to biblical truth. Indifferent. Life apart from God makes you indifferent to sin. Paul is saying, don't relapse into that. 
Be aware, he says. Be aware, beware. If sin stops bothering you, sin that you do and sin that you see, entertainment. Does sin in entertainment bother you? Use of social media, self-promotion. Do you really get excited about being liked or loved on Twitter and Facebook? Does it bother you when you're not? What is that doing to your heart? Are you sensitive to that more than you are the Lord and his word? Use of the internet, what do you look at? Oh, you can push delete all you want on your computer, but there is no delete button in the mind of God. Are you callous? We all were. We were insensitive to sin. Having become callous, he's talking about the state that we should no longer be in. Don't be like this. Don't walk like this, he says. And then he finishes by saying, change from limitless lust. Limitless is an interesting word because it has a spectrum from little to a lot. It's all bad to God, but there's a spectrum. Having and have given themselves over to, it's a sexual or sensuality, sexual immorality. Sexual nuance here. What are you thinking about with regard to the gift of intimacy that God gives married people that should not be thought about or experienced or viewed or entertained by in any other context except what Hebrews 12 calls the marriage bed. They've given themselves over to sexual sin. Listen, I know we think that our, our culture is so um, saturated with sexual imagery. It, it is, but that's, it's not a whole lot different than the world that, that Paul is addressing here. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, those lusts about sexuality, that's, that's not my, what, what I'm worried about, so I'm exempt from that. Well, he goes on. He says, they've given themselves over to sexual sin, to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity. He lumps us all in there. Lust, in, lust the flesh, lust the eyes, pride of life. It's all in there now. Every kind of sin, every kind of impurity. And there's, it's limitless, every kind. It can be the smallest nuance of a thought and the worst action of a deed. Now, when he says every kind of impurity, what is he talking about? I think we have a good idea by looking ahead at what he corrects, what he writes to to correct. Ephesians 4.25, therefore laying aside all falsehood, speak Truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. Lying. Lying is part of every kind of impurity. Be angry, verse 26, do not sin. Unresolved anger. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer. Theft of any kind. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear, speaking in ways that hurt people. That's a part of the impurity. 
And then there's just the all-around negative attitude toward, attitude toward others. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you along with all meanness, malice. He comes back to sexual sin in 5.3. Immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Verse 4 of chapter 5, he talks about inappropriate joking. There must be no filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse joking or jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. And then verses 5 to 11, he says, walk as children of light. Don't not only be a part of not doing it, but expose these things. Chapter 5, verse 18, drunkenness, we can go on. But look at how he ends this with greediness. By the way, in chapter 5, verse 15, he says, be careful how you walk, how you live, not as unwise, but wise. But he says at the end, do, every kind of impurity, and then a strange little footnote, with greediness. Why does it say with greediness? Well, the word means covetousness, greed, unrestrained appetite for selfish indulgence. That's what it means. You're just selfish. All this is how sin pleases you. And Paul's whole point is this is how you used to be. Formerly, don't be that way. Don't be that way any more. There are only two ways to live, as a believer or as an unbeliever. Do you find yourself tempted to relapse into your unbelieving way of thinking and living? So let's reverse it real quick. Instead of living in the futility of their mind, how about instead thinking purposefully, thoughtfully, intentionally about the gospel and its consequent effects Verse 18, darkened in their understanding, excluded, excluded from the life of God. How about instead being enlightened and informed by biblical truth that brings nearness to God, reading your Bible regularly to find out what those treasures are? Because of the hardness of the heart, how about instead being soft and receptive, receptive to God and his word? Become callous instead, being sensitive to sin, sin committed and sin around you, and giving themselves over to sensuality and every kind of impurity, instead being aggressive about turning from sin in thought and deed and living a life of selflessness instead of selfishness. So let's ask again, does it matter? Does it matter how you behave? Paul says it does. Do any of us behave like we want to. If you're like me, you'd say, well, sometimes. But not all the time and not enough. Which is why we're here, which is why we study, which is why we have our church. And it's also why we honor God's reminder in our participation in the Lord's Supper to remember that that was our old self and we're putting on the new. There's lots more to say about this in the coming verses, by the way. Put off, put on. We're, we're going to get more to that.